Please take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Let's all hear the Lord's holy word. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall hear, bear his judgment where whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. We'll end our reading there, trusting God to add his own blessing for his name's sake. Can we bow our heads just for a moment, please? Let's all ask the Lord to draw near. Let's all pray. Gracious Father in heaven, before we come to the proclaiming of thy truth and the hearing of it, we ask that the Spirit of God would open the way for that word to run in our hearts, have that free course of which the Apostle speaks. Remove every barrier. Deal, Lord, with any distractions. Take weariness from the mind and body, we pray. We might all feel ourselves shut in with thee now. And Lord, that through the word will come that still small voice of our God saying, here is the word 
for our souls today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. My text is found in verse 17 this morning. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Of all the books in the Bible, the book of Galatians was without a doubt the book, the book of the Reformation of the 16th century. Martin Luther considered it the best book of all the books in the Bible, bar none. He said this was the best book. In describing his love for Galatians, Martin Luther went so far as to say that, I quote him now, to it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Catherine was his wife's name. That's how he viewed uh, the book of Galatians, his marriage partner. So much he was in love with his book. But when you understand the message of Galatians and when you understand the spiritual darkness of 16th century Europe, due primarily to the false gospel of the Church of Rome that had been preached for centuries, you'll understand why Galatians was called the battle cry of the Reformation. But whether it's Paul's day, Luther's day, or our day, this letter to the churches of Galatia raises and answers the question that was raised by Job long before there was Paul or Luther or the Reformation. The question raised in Job was, how can man be just with God? That's a big question, a needful question. How can man, born a sinner, born unrighteous, be just with God. How can he know with full assurance that God will treat him as one who is just, who is acceptable, who is pleasing to God and protected from his holy, infinite wrath? Everyone here needs to know the answer to that question. In answering that question, it answers those nagging questions about how to obtain real peace of heart, real joy in your soul, the very things that sin takes away from a man. The need to have that question answered and those longings to be satisfied has been approached by man historically in basically two ways. One is legalism. The other is libertarianism. In legalism, man tries to make himself just, acceptable in the eyes of God and find peace of heart and joy through human efforts, whatever those efforts may be, whether that be morality or uh, religious asceticism or attempts to keep the law of God. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, it makes man 
the captain of his fate and the master of his own soul, to borrow the words of that chilling poem, Invictus. The other approach man has taken to obtain this peace and joy that he craves is through libertarianism. Interestingly, it is often that legalism has paved the way for libertarianism. In essence, man has said, since strict obedience to a moral law has not satisfied our innermost longings for peace and joy, let's try this. Let's try disobedience to the law. Let's throw off all of this legal bondage, which only makes us miserable. Let's get rid of all these restraints. All these thou shalt nots. Don't do this, don't do that. They only hamper our freedom, our happiness, therefore. Our happiness, our joy, is going to be found in our liberty. But neither of these ever satisfy this longing, this need for acceptance with God and peace and joy that comes with that realization that you are just and you are holy in the sight of God, that the Lord is pleased, perfectly pleased with you, that he actually rejoices over you. He actually delights in you. You have ravished his heart. That's where joy and peace actually come in and thrive. The only answer to Job's question, therefore, it's only one in anyone searching for happiness and searching for peace. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always has been and always will be the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Galatian believers addresses both of these errors by addressing them in the light of that very gospel. The Galatians had been infected with a group of false teachers who had gained a good bit of ground in turning them away from the gospel that Paul had preached to them. They were getting them to believe that a man is just before God because of some strict adherence to the law of Moses, particularly that ceremonial law that was requiring circumcision. Paul, in his spirit-filled wisdom, takes them back to the fundamentals of the faith. It's back to the basics of what it is to be justified freely by God's grace and not by the works of the law. If you're trying to be justified by the works of the law, you've forgotten something. It's not just circumcision. That's what they were teaching. You have to obey the whole law, not just one part of the law. He teaches them 
the old Reformation truths, gospel truths, that you are acceptable to God. You're made righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not a combination of grace and works, pure, free, sovereign grace. To follow the teaching of these Judaizers who had crept into these churches was to put themselves back under the bondage of the law again. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul calls upon them to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. But, but, the Holy Spirit knows that there is always a danger that comes in connection with liberty. To think that freedom from trying to be justified by the law of God means freedom from obedience to the law of God. So he says in verse 13, For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Turning Christian liberty into a license to sin is an evil that is ingrained in sinful human nature. That's the tendency always. But true Christian liberty is not the right to sin. To do what one wants to do. True Christian liberty is the freedom to desire and to do what one should do. The freedom and the desire to do what one should do. That's real liberty. And what one should do is laid down for us in the moral law of God, which is summarized by Christ himself as loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole summary of the Ten Commandments. Love is the word that encapsulates it all. Our problem, and it's I say our, it's mine as much as it is yours. Our problem as Christians who understand this and want to do what God would have us to do is that we have a traitor in our hearts. That's our problem. Satan has an ally within us. When it comes to obtaining that full assurance of faith, that full assurance that we're saved, full assurance that we're justified, when the doubts are removed and we're confident we belong to the Lord, that God accepts us, that we have, he's opened up to us the fount of all true peace and all true joy. When it comes to obedience to God, 
This is the source of our greatest opposition. Verse 17, Paul calls it the flesh. That's the traitor. That's Satan's ally. He's got a friend within the flesh. But, and here is where I want to put your eyes on one glorious aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of Christ's people. Why God has sent, at least one of the great reasons he has sent the Holy Ghost into our souls. It is to deal decisively, decisively with our flesh. So, what I want to preach a little bit about this morning is the Holy Spirit's war against our flesh. Notice I'm not talking about your war right now. That's a part of it, but what I want to focus upon is the Holy Spirit's war against our flesh. So let's first break this all down and look at the reason there is a war going on in the heart of every Christian. If you're saved, there's a war going on in your heart. The spirit of the flesh, Paul says, are contrary in our text, contrary the one to the other. Literally, it reads, they lie opposite to one another. They lie opposite to one another. They're on different sides. In other words, it's like there's two enemies laid out in battle array. This side's here, this side's there, and they're opponents of each other. The verb, verb form of that word means opponent or adversary. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, Paul said that a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. There's a noun form. Same word, but the noun form. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, he describes the man of sin who shall be revealed as one that opposeth, there's the word again, and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So I speak of what is taking place in your heart and mine, right now, right here and now, right now, as the word of God is being preached, there is an opponent that's warring against anything God would want, any and everything that God would want you to hear today in this message, any and everything that God would want you to do as a result of hearing this message, there is an inveterate enemy that opposes, that stands against, that is militant and keeping all truth out that would change your behavior. That's, that's what the preaching of God's word is about, brothers and sisters. It is about changing our behavior. Every time we come to hear the Lord's word, every time we open up the book to read the Lord's word, it must be with the eye, I need to be changed in some way, shape, or form. Isn't that what sanctification is about? Being changed so that we speak differently and we think differently and we behave differently. Change. That's the desire. But there's an enemy. That makes for a war. The two chief adversaries 
in this war are the Holy Spirit and the flesh. Those are the two chief adversaries, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who indwells our souls and the flesh within. They're at war. Paul uses several synonyms in his epistles to speak of this flesh. He, as we read this morning in Romans 7, the sin that dwelleth in me. He says, evil is present with me. He says, the law of sin that's in my members. All those expressions teach us that every Christian in one sense in one sense, is double-minded. Because we have been born again, new birth regenerated, we've been made new creations in Jesus Christ, all things that passed away, all things, all things that become new. We have a new mind. We have a new way of thinking. We have a new view of life, a new view of God, a new view of the world, a new view of ourselves a new view of our neighbors. We have a new will, new desires, new volition. We have a new heart. We have new loves, new ambitions in life. Because of that, we have these holy desires to please God. That's there. It's in every Christian. You want to obey the Lord. Bottom line truth. A Christian is somebody, at the end of the day, who wants to please the Lord. But the, the old mind, the old will, the old affections have not been eradicated totally. If that had been the case, there would not be any war going on. We are still, to a considerable degree, under the power of our old way of thinking and our old way of feeling. That's exactly what Paul was describing as he described his own self. I feel myself sold under the power of sin. It wasn't Paul before he was saved. Everything is present tense there. This is where I'm dealing with right now in my life. The things I would do, I do not. The things I would not, those I do. That's power. How many times have you succumbed to temptation? You went into it with your eyes wide open. You knew it was wrong. And yet you made a decision to disobey the commandment. We're all guilty. Every last one of us here are guilty of that. We're not sinless yet. There is this war that's going on within. So when you have two minds that are of two different, entirely different dispositions and desires, you've got a war on your hands. I almost want to stop here, but I might get off on a rabbit trail, but you know, husbands and wives think about this right now. There's war. You know, it might not be war, but spats and disagreements and fights. You got two opponents. 
know, there's just two, two minds here, and the minds have got to be reconciled. You, you don't want it to be, you know, wartime every day. You know what marriage is like, right? I married my son about a month or so ago. It was the last one to get married, and I told the congregation that they don't know what this is about. They really don't understand. I, I think that marriage counseling prior to marriage, by and large, is a waste of time. Unless you find out something. These guys are really problems. They shouldn't be getting married. But by and large, you don't know what it's like until you get married. You know, I, I, I said that getting married is like getting a phone call in the middle of the night. You get a ring, and then you wake up. There were a lot more in that crowd chuckling that day than there were here, but uh, a lot of them were already married. They understood that. The point being, when you have two minds going in opposite directions in any relationship, you're going to have a battle. Now, this is the kind of battle we want. If there's no war going on, there's a problem. All of these terms, I, sh I should say, unless I mislead anyone, all these terms that Paul uses to describe this enemy within, this sinful nature, are simply personifications of the sin principle. Let me call it, it's, it's a, 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 a principle of evil that's within our hearts. He just uses these terms, the flesh, the evil that's within me, this law in, in my mind, uh, a mode of operating. It's, it's just words he uses to describe that. The, the flesh, the old man, is not some separate living entity that does its own thing, totally apart from us, totally apart from our wills. You can't blame it on, well, it was my old man that made me do it. It wasn't really me. As if I didn't have any part in it. As if it wasn't my decision to succumb to the temptation. As if I couldn't hold back my tongue or have that proud thought, that unkind word, that critical spirit. In other words, when I sin against God, I, I can't sit back and say, I am not responsible for my actions. That's a complete misunderstanding of what Paul meant when he said, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. His whole object in putting it like that was to simply drive home the point to his readers, the great conflict of these two opposing principles in his mind. And how entirely, as a new man, because in his soul he actually delights in the law of God, he condemned his corrupt nature with all of its sinful lusts and actions. But not for one split second was Paul trying to excuse his own responsibility in sinning against God. The blame was his, and he knew it. The teaching that leads a man to believe that he's not responsible for his sinful desires and his choices, but that he can blame them on some mysterious old man 
That man is being lied to and he is buying a pack of lies and he will gladly use that lie to convince himself that he's not a pretender and a stranger to real godliness. He'll use that lie. You see, one of the very reasons that there is a war going on in the heart of every Christian is because, first, the Holy Spirit has created a desire for and a delight in holiness in every believer. The Holy Ghost has created by his own power a delight in and a desire for holiness of life. From verse 19, we didn't read and following. It is clear, the word he uses is manifest. The works of the flesh are manifest. It means evident. They're crystal clear. That our flesh is unholy. Look at what they are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. The works of the flesh are evident. Can't mistake them. But the Holy Spirit counters, remember, he's the cause for the war. He counters these works of the flesh, not only by creating a, a new bent of heart, a new direction for the heart, but by exerting his influence, by exercising his power on the believer's heart and mind so that he walks according to the Spirit. He actually walks. He actually obeys. This is the idea of being led by the Spirit. Led. Verse 18, the first part. But if ye be led of the Spirit... You're not under the law. The word led. That's not about being pointed in the right direction and told to go there. It's not what that word means. He actually leads Christians. You know, when you want let, let me lead you here. You, you bring them there. You take them by the hand and you bring them there. The Holy Spirit leads Christians to and down that path. And he does this for all believers, bar none. Romans 8.14, listen to what Paul writes. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's a mark of being saved. A son of God. You're led by the Spirit of God. It's something that is true to one degree or another for every child of God. Why is that so? Because back in verse 1 of that same chapter, Romans 8, Paul states that 
you'll recognize someone who has been delivered from condemnation and that someone is in Christ Jesus because they walk not after the spirit, but after the flesh. That their behavior, that's their lifestyle. That's what characterizes them. That's what characterizes their conduct. They walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. Why? Verse 2, the law of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit, the principle, the work of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm free from the law of sin and death. That does not mean simply I'm free from legal condemnation at the hands of God's law and the accompanying spiritual death and eternal death. All of that is true. It is the law of sin and death that he was talking about back in chapter 7. Remember, this is no chapter divisions here. He's just going on with the same line of thought. He was dealing with that law of sin in his members. But I have been made free from that law of sin by the Holy Spirit within me. So in other words, the Holy Ghost has broken this bondage of sin. No longer servants. So that the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us, chapter 8, verse 4, in order that the righteousness of the law, this is holiness of life, obedience, let me put it another way. We can get lost in the jargon, you know, sometimes. It means we look more like Jesus. It means we act more like Jesus. It means we talk more like Jesus. We think more like Jesus. And that's the point of it all. Christ-likeness. Behaving like the Master. Doing what pleases the Master, not what pleases ourselves. That's why you can never talk about imputed righteousness without imparted righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that's why Paul can plainly state in chapter 6 of Romans that sin shall not, shall not have dominion over you. It cannot, it cannot have dominion those chains, that bondage has been broken by the work of the Spirit of God. You will no longer ever be a slave, a slave to sin. Impossible. All of that to say that the very character and conduct of the believer the Holy Spirit created desire for and delight in God's moral law explains just why there is this war going on. That means several things are true about every Christian. First, the Christian has no desire to change the standards of God's holy law. There's no desire to change the standards. 
to drop out any of the commandments. Because the commandments define holiness. When you talk about or pray about or preach about Christ-likeness, what are you talking about? What is Christ-likeness? Christ came into this world to fulfill the law. Every jot and tittle. Not an obedience he earned for himself. He did not need that, but he needed to earn it for us. And he did. So now when we say we just want to be like Jesus, what you're saying is, I want that same holiness of life that Jesus had. I want to be like him in obedience to God's word. Not my will, but thine be done. When the believer reads the Ten Commandments, his own conscience, as it did with Paul, says they're good and they're right. And you say, I delight in that law of God. It pleases me. I've got no argument with the Ten Commandments. I've no problems with what the Lord is commanding me to be and to do and how to live my life. I'm not going to fight God on this. Not one word, not one syllable, not, not one jot and tittle, not one yod, the smallest Hebrew character, not one tittle. It's a little tiny, tiny mark that goes over to distinguish a bait from a doleth. It's so tiny. Not one would I change. While we know that the law would have condemned us to hell, we gladly gladly confess that this law is holy and just and good. It actually shows us what pleases the Lord and what displeases Him. What God loves and what God abominates. And when you read that God abominates something, you sit up and you take notice. He detests it. He despises it. It is with infinite holy hatred. We got to come to grips with that. There's no lighthearted view in God's mind with sin. No. He despises all unrighteousness. The law reveals that. And because we have the Spirit of Christ, our mind is in agreement with God. It's completely foreign to the nature of the new man to set up a different set of standards than what God has already established. It's foreign to this nature the Holy Ghost has created. Can you imagine the Holy Ghost has created this new nature, a new creation? And to say, I have, I have within me a, a new nature and a new mind and a new will and a new love. And I'm actually going to raise up stands, standards that are contrary to God's own moral law. Does that jive with your understanding? Does that make any sense at all? It grieves the believer at his heart. To see the standards changing. Men attempting to change the standards. 
to see the law of God made void, to see it trampled underfoot. To see the loud, outlandish, flagrant behavior of men who make rules and laws in clear contradiction. And because they want it to be clear contradiction of God's law. Reversing everything that God commanded. You want to know why there's transgenderism flourishing? Because from the beginning, God made them male and female. And Satan wants that completely reversed. You want to know why there's so much flesh being shown in society? So much porn? Because God covered the Adam and Eve in their nakedness. He covered it. Hide it. Satan, let's take it off. It's always about Satan's utter hatred for God's law. So you see why Christians should have a really hard time with men wanting to water down the law of God, to take away the law of God, to change the standards that God himself has set. It's even more grievous to the Christian when he sees the church herself redefine holiness and bring the church into greater conformity to the world instead of conformity to Jesus Christ. The greater your love is for the Lord, the greater your love is for his law. And it is grieving to see Christians wanting to water down the truth. If you can honestly say with David, oh, how I love thy law. And with Paul, I delight in the law of God. You will hate any change to the standards of God's moral law. Hate it. Why? Because the greatest commandment of all, yes, the fulfilling of the law, is love to God. Sure indicator, you know, folks. It's a sure indicator. If you love me, then you keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to show it by your attitude and your heart, your reaction to my laws. And obedience to that law is a declaration that you belong to him, that the Holy Ghost is actually within you. And that's why there is this war going on. The Christian delights, delights in God's law. The law is not burdensome to him. He does not view it as something that is confining and restricting. As if they're just chains you'd rather be free of. If that's the sentiment, if that's the feeling when you're faced with the law of God, I would suggest you now, am, am I really a child of God? 
If that's my attitude towards the law, if that's my attitude toward real biblical holiness, then I've got to wonder, is the Holy Ghost even within me? Because if he's within me, he's given me a new will, a new love, new desires, and I'm going to delight in the Lord's law. It not be something I'm going to fight against. You, you won't have any problem with the Sabbath day. A day to be set apart from the rest. You won't look for ways to try to find out how you can not keep it and have a clear conscience. You won't. You won't want to take the Lord's name in vain. You will not want to engage in, can I call it, whitewashed foul language. You know, gosh and gee and golly. You know what those words mean, right? They're euphemisms. G is for Jesus. That's what it stands for. The dictionary definition. Look it up. Gosh and golly means for God. Uh, preacher, you're really being legal. Really? Listen, if, 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 if a dictionary says this is what this word means, and there's a whole lot of others that you try to make, you know, a euphemism is, is trying to make a word sound good that would, if you said it, would sound bad. But you're bombarded with it every day. And, you know, you, you hear these little children, OMG, all, little kids. And there's no grief about it. There's no wincing. Christian man is not one who thinks that the preaching of the law and the urging of obedience to God's law is some kind of legalism. That is why I have strong and serious objections to those specious arguments called Christian liberty. I have found that those who cry the loudest and longest for this Christian liberty are really looking for a license to sin. They want heaven without holiness. The true Christian will have desires in his heart for those things which transgress God's law. And he will even at times carry them out in actions. We all testified to that a little bit ago. Succumb to temptation. But the Holy Spirit will never allow you to take any lasting, any lasting pleasure in sin. He will not allow that. It will not go on and on and on and on. Why? Because he wars against. That's what the text says. He wars against the lust, the desires of the flesh. He is an adversary to the works of the flesh. He fights against them. And do you actually think that the Holy Ghost, who has been given to you, in you, to work out that Christ-likeness in your life, is going to sit idly by... And let you just go, because there is pleasure in sin, it's for a season. Do you actually think he's going to let that go on and on and on and not do anything about it? And not war against it? That's not what Paul is saying. It's just the opposite. 
Oh, you are prone to wonder. As Octavius Winslow said in his book on backsliding or personal declension and revival of religion in the soul, there is this perpetual tendency to backslide from the Lord and his people. Backslide. That's the point that David is making in Psalm 23. He restoreth my soul. The word restoreth means he brings back. David, as the shepherd, knew what sheep do. They're prone to wander, but the shepherd brings back. He brings back and keeps bringing back. How many times in your lifetime have you been brought back to the shepherd? How many times? How many times have you wandered away? Every time the Lord has gone after you. I went away for three years in my life. Three years. Hard, wicked years. But there came a day when the Holy Ghost said, it ends here. It ends here. And he brought me back. And I haven't left since. Amen. Oh, I've wandered. I've prone. Heart grows cold. Yes. Careless about the things of God. You leave away the place of prayer and the word of God. And your heart grows cold. But always, always, always the Holy Ghost comes. And you find your soul refreshed. It's like a little reviving. And you know what you want to do? I just want to get back to the Lord. I want to get back on my knees before God. And I want to confess my sin and my backsliding and my coldness and say, Lord, revive me. Revive me. That is the Holy Ghost warring against sin in your heart. That's what he does. And he will continue to do until the time comes when we will sin no more because we will see Jesus as he is and be like him. Not only does the Christian have no desire to change or compromise the law of God, but the Christian's great longing and labor is for conformity to that law. Because the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost leads a believer to desire and delight in holiness, as I've already pointed out, it is only natural that he wants. He wants to obey God's law more and more. It's the hypocrite, you know, it's the hypocrite that says he loves the law of God, yet lives his life with no regard for that law. That's the hypocrite. That was the Pharisees. Oh, they, they knew the law. They knew it like nobody's business. And pretended to be great lovers of that law. You know, always ready to point out any straying from the law. They were the true legalists, but they were hypocrites. They weren't saved. You want to know what the great desire of the Christian really is? If God were to come to the believer like he did to Solomon and say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. You know, I believe every believer would say, get rid of my sin. Take my sin away. End my sinning. Because I don't want to grieve you. 
It grieves me when I grieve you. I love your law, Lord. I want to obey every jot and tittle, but I fail time and time again. So if there's one thing I would ask you to give me, sinlessness. Why is that? Because you want conformity to God's law. Because you want to be like Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8 as to why you were chosen, why you were elect, why you were called, why you were justified, why you were glorified, that you might be like in the image of his son. Little Christs, little Christs. Let me hasten to say that to delight in the law of God not only means that you will long to obey that law, but you will labor to obey it. We can't just talk about desires, you know, and stop there. It gets down to the practical nitty-gritty of laboring, laboring to obey, striving. That is why the emphasis in Scripture is upon our walk, how we conduct ourselves. Actions always speak louder than words. You may transgress God's law, you may fall a thousand times, but you will always get back up and go at it again. You will labor to walk in the commandments of the Lord because the Holy Spirit wars against the lust of your flesh. You will labor to live like that. Now it's true. And you cannot deny it. There are some Christians who labor more than others at it. Some Christians who take more earnestly, more seriously the means of grace. It is grace. It's freely given. But there are means, there are channels that God has set up whereby grace is communicated to our hearts. And the more grace there is in the life, guess what happens? The more conformity to God's law you actually experience. You want to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul, that's what he was striving for all along. This is what I want more than anything else. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Read that in its context, and you will see he's referring to perfect Christ-likeness. Grace, but there are means to it. You'll want to conform to the law, and it won't matter what anyone else thinks about you. They may call you a legalist, or a Pharisee. But you will still go on in spite of it all. You see, when, when a man is willing to bear reproach and to be laughed at, to be ridiculed, to be called all these kinds of names because you want to obey the Lord's law, when he's quite content to lose the approval of men because he must and will follow the law of God, then that man gives proof there's a war going on in his soul. And when you've got a war going on in your soul, 
There's one reason for it. The Holy Ghost is in you. That's wonderful. The Holy Ghost is in you. Whenever you hear people want to lower the standards, want to redefine what holiness is like, whenever you find them trying to vindicate unbiblical views of right and wrong, you can rest assured that is not the Spirit of God that's speaking. It's not. It's the sinful flesh. So does, I guess it comes down to, does your heart delight in the law of God? Just honestly. It, it, it's something I really delight in. And do you labor to obey the law? I'm not asking you if you keep it perfectly because that's not going to happen this side of glory. But before God, can you say, Preacher, I am not what I should be, and I am not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be, and there's been a change in my life, and I really do want to obey the Lord. I really do want to be like Jesus. If that's the truth, Thank God for giving you the Holy Ghost. Thank God that you're going to keep on keeping on. Because he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. If not, if you say, I don't really have that interest in, that desire for, and I have to ask you, are you saved? Do you know the Lord? Do you know him at all? Profession is one thing. Possession of the Holy Ghost is something else altogether different. Why not now? I would ask you, why not today? Run to Christ and say, save me from my sin. Save me. I'm lost. I'm condemned by the law. Save me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we pray the Spirit of God will continue to preach thy word to our souls. Encourage thy people, Lord, this morning to the blessed reality of the Spirit's presence, especially that he is thy warrior against our sinful flesh. We thank thee that he has never lost a battle and never will. We rejoice that we already know the outcome of this war. One day, one day we thank thee we will be delivered forever from sin. Until that time comes, we pray for more grace, Lord, and greater grace to make use of the means of grace that we might be more like the Master, be more useful to Him. For those who may know Thee not, bring them, we pray, lovingly to the Savior Himself, the One who's promised, if anyone come to Me, I'll no wise cast him out. 
In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.